and standing in honor of God's Word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter, and this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that as I preach this morning before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and before your people, I want to ask that you will send your spirit so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. I love this quote by the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who after having the audacity to criticize Joseph Stalin in a public letter, spent eight years in the gulag. Speaking of the communists, he said, We know they are lying. They know they are lying. They know we know they are lying. We know they know we know they are lying. But they are still lying. The power of propaganda is not to be taken lightly. It's been said, if you repeat the lie often enough, people will believe it. And if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. At least it does in the minds of those who believe the lie. Who knows, perhaps if you repeated often enough that men could actually get pregnant, people might believe that. I know that's ludicrous, and no one would ever believe that. It's not like you would turn to Facebook and find an emoji of a pregnant man. But perhaps if that lie was repeated enough, people would begin to believe it. John 8, 32, Jesus said, The truth shall set you free, even if you should be imprisoned and tortured externally, internally nevertheless your conscience and your spirits will be free. Peter is writing to Christians who are being lied to by false prophets and teachers. To be more precise, they are being lied to by immoral, greedy, false teachers. I underscore that because the two always go together. 
false teaching will lead to false living, and false living will lead to false teaching. It's like a two-lane highway. Now, if you were here last week, I mentioned that Peter's dying desire was for God's people to have God's word, so that at any time they could open it up and recall the things that he had taught them. We saw that back in verse 15. Peter said, I will make every effort so that after my departure, literally exodus, he's referring to his death, he says, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And that's crucial because recalling God's word will enable you to never fall, but to stand firm regardless of what trials may come your life. We need God's word in order to combat the lies of false teachers, along with the lies of this world and the lies of the devil, who is the father of all lies. We need God's word that will enable you to know God's will for your life so that you can glorify him and live a fulfilling life. Uh, Peter knows that his desire will become a reality. And what he is doing in verses 16 through 21 is showing us that we can have complete, total confidence in God's word. He is going to show us that we can open up the scriptures and trust what we are reading without having any hesitations or questions whatsoever. And this is important. Because think about it. As Christians, we base our entire lives and our eternal destiny based on what God has revealed in his word. We're seeking to build our marriages on what God has revealed in his word. We're letting God define what marriage is. We're reminding ourselves that the supreme being, not the supreme court, defines what marriage is and the boundaries of marriage and how a husband and a wife is to function within that marriage, again, so that God can be glorified and we can experience the rich intimacy that comes from living as God is calling us to live. As parents, we're seeking to raise our children in the fear and admonition of of the Lord as God requires of us. In our business practices, we're we're seeking to live according to the principles of God's word where we work hard. And we're honest with equal weights and and measures. And if we employ people, we give them fair fair pay because we want to honor God in our business practices. And even the priorities of our lives are based on what God has revealed in his word where he tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And when we do that, all the other things that we need in life will be added on to us. And I could go on and on. And it's all based on the word of God. So if we're, if we're going to base our entire life and, and eternal destiny on God's word, we need to know that we can trust it. And Peter's saying, you can trust it. And he has two simple points this morning. If you're taking notes, he's saying, we can trust it because it was written by eyewitnesses. And number two, you can trust it because it was written by inspiration. Written by eyewitnesses written by inspiration. So let's begin with written by eyewitnesses. In verse 16, Peter said, We did not follow 
cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Most likely, Peter is addressing an accusation that was hurled against him and the other apostles, namely that what they're writing is just fairy tales, made-up stories, inventions out of their head or something they got from someone else. And, and Peter saying, no, we were eyewitnesses of his power and coming. And we'll get into the details of that later, but there's two basic interpretations Uh, The first is that the power and coming refers to the second coming. The second interpretation is that the power and coming refers to the coming of judgment in 70 A.D. I hold to the latter interpretation. Um, I'll give you the reasons later when we get into chapter 3. But regardless, what I want you to see for now is that whether you think it's the judgment in 70 AD or the judgment at the end of history, people scoff at the idea of a judgment. And the reason why they scoff at it is because they don't want to be accountable for what they've done. They don't want to admit before God that they're sinners. They don't want to do what we did a little while ago and just confess, yes, I am a sinner. I don't know about you. I'm I'm confessing Mark is right. I'm more worried about my image often than I am my integrity before God. They don't want to do that. So they scoff at the idea that a day of judgment is coming. Actually, it gets worse than that. Not only do they scoff at that, they get angry. You talk about a coming judgment? Watch it how angry people get. Street preachers experience that all the time. How dare you tell me I'm going to stand accountable before God someday? People get angry because they don't want to face the truth about who they are. But again, we'll get into the details of that later. But Peter is insistent, no, we didn't make this up. We're telling you what we saw with our own eyes. We were eyewitnesses. John said the same thing in 1 John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Simply put, Peter is saying, We were eyewitnesses. Our letters are reliable. We're telling you what we saw, what we heard, even what we touched. And then Peter mentions the transfiguration. We'll see why in a minute, but first let's see what happened on this occasion. Uh, One time Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they they went up on the holy mountain. And it's significant that they went up on a mountain because to go up on a mountain is where you would go to meet with God. It was the place where God would make his presence known often. It was the place sometimes where you would actually hear the voice of God. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai where God appeared and, and spoke to him and delivered to him the Ten Commandments. The transfiguration 
was the mountaintop experience to beat all mountaintop experiences. Luke 9, 28 and 29 says, Now after about eight days, after saying these things, he, talking about Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, now can I stop there for a moment? I think it's significant that Luke says, he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, this experience took place. And I'm pausing here because it's amazing as you read through the Bible how many things take place when God's people are praying. And sometimes we just gloss right over it and we don't, we don't make the connection. This is significant. He mentions prayer twice. This happened to Jesus because he was praying. Another episode that you might have glossed over is found in the baptism of Christ. In Luke 3, 21, we read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and notice, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. As Jesus was praying during his baptism, the heavens opened up, the spirit descended like a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke. That's significant. And again, I just want you to pay attention. Let your antenna go up. As you're reading through the Bible and you read that someone is praying, whether it's Jesus, maybe Peter or someone else, pay attention to what comes and make the connection. It's not an incidental fact that we're told, as he was praying, this awesome experience took place. It's not a coincidence. Often when God's people are on their knees, in their prayer closet, God shows up in a magnificent way. Okay, let me get back on track. So they go up on a mountain, Jesus praying, and as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew 17, 10, or excuse me, 2 says, He was transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorphous. You know that word. It's like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. This amazing transformation took place. Matthew says, His face shone like the sun. Some scholars say that literally could be translated that beams of light came from his face like the sun. Like the sun. You may recall when Moses appeared with God on Mount Sinai for 40 days, he, he came down and his face was glowing, and he didn't even know it was glowing. And when the Israelites saw his face glowing, we're told that they were afraid and they turned away. Jesus' face is glowing not just because it's the reflected glory of God, but because it is the glory of God. And it's shining like the sun. And Matthew goes on and says, And his clothes became white as light. Now, as awesome as this sight was, and I don't even think we can imagine it, what Peter really focuses on is the voice that spoke to them from heaven. And he says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Matthew describes it this way. He says, And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And Peter says, We saw the sights, we saw the glory, and we ourselves heard the voice. Now, why does Peter highlight the transfiguration? Why, why not call our attention to the, the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself? Why, why the transfiguration? Um, I think he mentions the transfiguration because it provides a wonderful transition from what he wants to refute and what he wants to assert. First of all, what he wants to refute is that he's just making up these stories. So he's saying, no, I'm not, we're not making it up. We were eyewitnesses. We saw the transfiguration. We heard the voice. And then it's a great transition to what he wants to assert. And that brings us to our second point. We can trust God's word because it's written by eyewitnesses and because it is written by inspiration. Notice what he says in verse 19. After describing the transfiguration and this voice from heaven, he says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, here's a great question. What could possibly be better than having a physical, visual display of the glory of Jesus Christ and hearing a voice come from heaven from God himself speaking to you. What could be better than that? Peter tells us, hearing God's voice in the pages of Scripture. If you're jealous of Peter, James, and John, if you're thinking, I wish I could have been there on the mountain, you know what he says? You have something better, more sure, more reliable, more firm. You have the prophetic word right here. This is better. I saw a meme on Facebook a while back, and it was a man standing out in the field, and he's looking up at the sky, and he says, God, speak to me. And there's a picture of this giant hand coming out of heaven, and he's handing the guy a Bible. That's a great picture. We all want to hear from God. You want to hear from God this morning. I want to hear from God. We need answers. We need help. We need strength, guidance. And we're saying, Lord, speak to me. Answer me. And God is saying, we have that in his word. You're going through trials, and, and you don't know how you're going to make it through. And you're saying, God, speak to me. It, it's in here. You need guidance for the next step in a relationship or your business. Lord, I need to hear from you. Lord, speak to me. 
God's going to hand you his word. This is better than a voice speaking to you from heaven. I love what John Calvin said. The Bible should be received as if we had heard its words audibly from the mouth of God. That's true. You want to hear God speak? Read your word. You want to hear the audible voice of God? Read the Bible out loud. As incredible as the transfiguration was along with the voice from heaven, Peter asserts that the inspired word is more sure. You have the prophetic word. Now, don't let that word prophetic throw you off. It means it comes from a prophet, a man through whom God spoke. Often when we hear about prophecy, we, we think of telling the future. And while sometimes prophets did that, normally what they did was just proclaim what, what God had, had said. So the prophetic word is just Peter telling you what God has said, what Jesus said. I'm currently reading through this book by William Perkins, the, the Puritan, and it's called the, the Art of Prophesying. And that just means the art of preaching. So it's your old word for Preaching. So again, you don't always think, okay, predicting the future when you hear the prophetic word. No, it just means that this is a word from a prophet speaking for God, telling you what he requires of you. And then don't you love that phrase that we're to pay attention to the word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Reminds you of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Isn't that beautiful? Someone should turn that into a song. <laughs> the, the, the dark place is, is this world. This, this world without the light of Christ shining upon it is, is dark. And, and we, need, we need God's help. You want to know something sad? Just this last week I received a text from a man admitting, quote, sometimes I miss the darkness. Isn't that sad? This man is being honest about a spiritual struggle that he has. And he's admitting, sometimes I miss the darkness. He said, I find the light and mercy of God uncomfortable. I'm not used to it. We need God's light so that we can see clearly. And if we're all honest, we find ourselves, as repulsive it may seem when we're in our right minds, drawn to the darkness. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. You do it, and I do it. And what do we need to stay away from the darkness, to run in the other direction? We need the light of God's word so that we can see clearly because we don't. Can I be honest? You do not see clearly. You do not see the spiritual realities as you should. And I'm not pointing any fingers. I don't either. Which is why we continue to pray. Will you not revive us again, O Lord, so that your people may rejoice in you? Don't you ever find that there's times when God awakens you up, opens your eyes, and you realize that you've been distracted from doing what he's calling you to do? You've been absorbed by the things of the world? And Peter says, 
You need the light of God's word, and you will do well to pay attention. You don't need a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You don't need that. You just need God's word as a light, and it will give you the direction that you need. Isaiah warns us in 520, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we could add to that list. Who put ugliness for beauty and beauty for ugliness. It's amazing the things that this world is, is attracted to. It's, it's repulsive. It's like they're, they're proud of it. The values all switched around. They got their, got their priorities wrong. Reminds me of a story that I, that I heard a while back about somebody who walked into a, a hardware store, and he went to buy a hammer, and, and the price tag said $495. And he's like, what? Then he went to buy a lawnmower, and it said $9.95. Somebody had switched all the price tags and reversed them. The values were all mixed up. It's, it's how our world is. The, the values are all... Mixed up, they're valuing the things that they shouldn't value and not valuing the things that they should. It's because they don't have a light so that they can see clearly what's valuable and, and what isn't valuable. And we have that light. Think about that. We have that light. The, the next time you look at people in the world and you think, they are so lost, remember that the reason why you're not lost is because God has been so merciful and kind towards you and, and opened your eyes to the truth. I, I know where I would be if God didn't open my eyes at the age of 20. I know I wouldn't be standing up in front of you. I'd be so lost if I would even be alive. So just remember God's sovereign mercy extended towards you. Then Peter says in, in verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as the, the Spirit guided them. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Other translations say all, all scripture is inspired, but actually breathe out by God is a good literal translation. That's what the Greek word means, breathe out. Sproul like to say, instead of talking about inspiration, we should talk about expiration. God breathes out his word, and we, and we have it right here. And Peter says that men spoke from God as they were carried along, by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along is, is significant. Uh, the verb is used of a ship, a ship, excuse me, being driven along by the wind in Acts 27, 15, and, and 17. And it's also used in John 21, 18 of, of Peter. Jesus predicts his death, and he says, the day is coming where they will bring you where you do not want to go. 
They're going to bring you. They're going to carry you along where you do not want to go. But here are the words used positively. The Holy Spirit is carrying along the prophets as they spoke so that they would go and say and write what God wanted them to write. So when they're writing these letters, their personality comes through. We often talk about the voice of the the author. Their, Their language comes through. Their vocabulary comes through. But because of the work of the Holy Spirit carrying them along, they didn't make any mistakes. Thus, God's word is not only inspired, but it is inerrant. And that is crucial. It is inerrant. It has no errors. Now, some of you have heard me quote R.C. Sproul on many occasion. And here I'm going to quote him once again. And I have to quote him because in the last century, I could be wrong, but perhaps no one was a greater champion of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture than R.C. Sproul was. And I say that because in 1970, R.C. went to a man, I forget who it was, at Christianity Today who wrote a book on, on inspiration. And he said, this book is an awesome book. We need to have a council. We need to bring together significant religious leaders. And we need to hammer out a statement of faith and sign our names to this, declaring that we hold to the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. And this man said, well, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest because I wrote this book and it looked like I'd be trying to raise money for my book. And he said, why don't you do it? And he said, that's often how it works. You come up with an idea and that's a great idea. Why don't you do it? By the way, just so you know, we do that around here all the time. I got an idea for what we should do. That's a wonderful idea. You want to head that up? But R.C. Sproul did head it up. And he called together a group of almost 300 leaders from colleges and churches and denominations. And they met in Chicago in 1978. And they met for three days. And they hammered out what has now become known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And this is part of what Sproul said. The idea that God errors in any way, in any place, or in any endeavor is repugnant to the mind as well as the soul. Here, biblical criticism reaches the nadir of biblical vandalism. How could any sentient creature, in other words, how could any thinking person conceive of a formula that speaks of the word of God as errant? It would seem obvious that if a book is the word of God, it does not, indeed cannot err. If it errs, then it is not, indeed cannot be, the word of God. When it comes to inspiration, it's all or nothing. And that's true. When it comes to inspiration, it's all or nothing. Either it's the inspired word by God and therefore without errors, or it's not inspired by God. And then, of course, it's full of all kinds of errors and contradictions, just like any other human document of comparable size and scope. 
He went on to say, we urge our Christian brothers and sisters of all professions and denominations to join with us in a reaffirmation of the full authority, integrity, infallibility, and inerrancy of the sacred scriptures to the end that our lives may be brought under the authority of God's word, that we may glorify Christ in our lives individually and corporately as the church. The full trustworthiness of sacred scripture must be defended in every generation. End quote. The battle for the Bible has been with us since the Garden of Eden. It began when the serpent said to Eve, Did God really say? And it will be with us until the return of Jesus Christ. And why will this battle rage in every generation? Because of the implications that flow out of inerrancy. It's obvious, and you hear me say it every week. If God's word is indeed inspired, if it comes from the very mouth of God, then of course it's without errors. Of course it's infallible. There are no errors. In fact, it cannot err. It's God's word. And therefore, it is authoritative. It dictates how we are to live our lives. And that's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Well, we submit our lives to what God has revealed in his word. Earlier, I mentioned John 8, 32, where Jesus said the truth shall set you free. I want to turn back to that, and I want, to, I want to give you the full context because this is important. John 8, I'll begin at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's important. If you're going to be set free from the truth, you have to not only know it in your minds, but you have to abide in it. In other words, you have to apply it to your life. You have to live according to the truth. And when you live according to the truth, then you will experience the freedom, the liberty that God wants you to experience. Psalm 119, 100 I understand more than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Obedience is the great opener of eyes. If you really want to understand the truth, you have to obey it. And of course, the blessing comes from not just, not just knowing the truth, being able to memorize it so that, yep, I'm ready for the exam. What's the question, prof? No, you need to apply it to your life. That's, that's where the blessing comes from. James 1, 22 and 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Isn't that a beautiful paradox? the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
So the blessing comes from the doing. So we have God's inspired word, and we pay attention to it, not just so that we can be smart, but we listen to it so that we can apply it to our lives. And when that happens, we experience the blessings that come. And again, we want God's word to dictate how we live. We want this word to be a light to our path. We live in a world full of lies. It's, it's lying about God creating men and women in his, in his own image. We're, we're lying about there being boys and girls. We're lying about God's design for marriage. We're lying about what God has said for sexual health. We're lying. And this lie is being repeated and repeated, and we're being bombarded with lies. And we need to stand firm on the truth of God's word. And we, we need to know it so that when we stand against the world, we can say, I have a clear conscience before God. And here's where I love church history, because we can learn from those who have gone before us. And they've been on trial. Many of them, literally, maybe we won't be on trial literally, but we might be on trial before our families. We might be on trial before our neighbors. Maybe we'll be on trial at our our workplace because of our Christian convictions. You've heard me tell you this story before, but since we're talking about repeating ourselves, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms was asked to recant his writing, saying that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. That went against the church. And, and they said, you, you need to recant. And his, his life was on the line. And he spent the night in prayer, and it was in agony. It was like his own personal garden of Gethsemane. But then he came forth the next day, and, and he stood firm. And he said, among other things, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And it's my prayer for all of us that if such a time were to come, we could say something similar and say, my conscience is captive to the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. I can't go against God. I can't go against my conscience. I have to stand on what I believe to be true and leave the results up to God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, how blessed we are to have your word. Forgive us for neglecting it, for taking it for granted, for not realizing what a treasure it is. I pray that as a congregation, we will meditate on your word day and night. I pray that we will grow in our understanding of your word. And most importantly, I pray that we will apply it to our daily lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.